morning, Compass Bible Church. It is great to be with you guys this morning coming from, hey, we got some people down here in the front row. Very nice to be back, a place that feels like home. You guys have been so incredibly kind to us and our church, so we send greetings from Tustin where you heard we're no longer homeless, we've got a building, and God has been so incredibly kind. Thank you. Yeah, I'll tell you stories in a moment about how God worked and weaved so many wonderful things together, but just a, a word of gratitude to the to pastors, Pastor Mike and the staff here who have been so kind to help us and to guide us and to work with us as we got this building, and then you guys to be a part of that as well. Uh, we could not do what we do unless we had a great sending church like you guys, so thank you so much for doing that with us. God has worked so many wonderful things out. I wish I could tell you all of the different ways that he did this. I'll try to coalesce it into one great story. So uh, we've been renting from a school for a while, and we've been renting from a school, it went under some renovations, and then we just started to feel like we were getting some kickback from the school to where they no longer had enough space to accommodate the growing church that we had. And so we were looking like, oh no, we're going to be homeless soon because construction was still going on. In God's kindness, he sped up construction, everything looks great, worked together. So we were at a point where, okay, it's a Sunday, we don't have a place at the school, we don't have the permits from the city, we'll do church outside. So we did church outside, we've done it before, we've been on the field, no big deal for us. The only problem was the next week that that happened was the big hurricane that was coming through. You guys remember that? So we go, hey, I know we've done church on a field before, but like, Middle of a hurricane, maybe there's some health hazards there. So we're like, what are we going to do? Well, in God's kindness, you know we've had some trouble as we went with the city. They didn't want us there at first, and in God's kindness, we were able to get in. So I anticipated all of the inspections that came to be just super difficult. They were going to point things out. But you know what? Like, just inspection after inspection seemed to go super quick and got the approvals that we needed. You want to know one of the reasons why? God worked it out in his providence that the inspector who came in was a believer himself. He's a Christian. He's coming in and he's seeing that we're a church and he's looking and making sure we're doing everything and as soon as we got it, he writes it off. It gets even better than that. Not only was he a Christian, he was my son's former basketball coach. <laughs> like, and, yeah. And I'm not one of those parents that's yelling at coaches, so they like us, right? I'm there and we're working together. And he sees me, he's like, wow, it's so great. So he knew the storm was coming. He knew we needed approvals. He said, hey, you have to have all the finals. And the last one we needed was, was the fire approval. So he goes, hey, on Friday of the week of the big hurricane, Friday we don't work, so I can't come help you. But if you get all your inspections in by Thursday afternoon, I will make a special trip on my way home and I will come sign off. Friday afternoon at, or Thursday afternoon at two was our fire inspection and we prayed. We passed, we called him on his way home, he drove from his last job to us, signed off, and we were in our building four weeks early. God is incredibly kind. And it's when you look at that, you just step back and go, God, you are amazing. You weave stories together. It is wonderful to watch that. I love thinking about the idea of wonder. You can read stories of people who have these incredible jobs, and the way that they describe them sometimes is a sense of wonder and awe that they have. If there's any pilots in the room, the way that they talk about flying is incredible. 
They talk about flying is such an experience that brings awe and wonder. And every time you look up in the sky, you see a plane. You should be wowed that we are able to do things like that. I read an article one time by a pilot, and he was describing the first time that he saw the northern lights, the aurora borealis, and he was in awe. He thought it was so beautiful, breathtaking, captivating, could not take his eyes off of it. He described it like if you're a coffee fan, having a nice iced black coffee, and then you pour milk. And when you pour the milk into it, it dances through the coffee and looks so beautiful. He said, the way that the lights flash through the sky was incredible. I could not take my eyes off it. But the man had been a pilot for, I don't know, 40-some years. And listen to what he wrote. He says, yet since the years when I saw that and I became a pilot... I found that the northern lights have come to represent a challenge I did not expect. Sometimes I I find it hard to remain interested because they appear so regularly and because to pilots they have become ordinary. Think about that. A man who when he first saw the aurora borealis his breath was taken. He was in awe. He, he had this sense of wonder. What a great sight to behold. But the more that he came in contact to it, familiarity has bred contempt. What is so great has become ordinary. Now think about that temptation in the life of a believer. You and I have the privilege Every single day, every time we open up the Bible, when we come to church, to be met with the unmitigated greatness of God. And yet in that temptation of being regularly in the presence of something, we can sinfully relegate it into the realm of the ordinary. And now we're no longer in awe, and now we're no longer in wonder of the God of the universe who would send his son to die for us. And we've treated what is so great and so magnificent and so awesome as if it is something that is simply ordinary. Believers, this cannot be. One of the reasons I love Compass Bible Church is because of the distinctives that we have, and we seek to maintain a high view of God. How is that going with you this morning? When you drove to church, were you really excited to sing praises to God in a community of people that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that want to extol his name? Were you excited to have the word open so you would see the greatness of God on the pages of his inspired word? Or were you just kind of like, uh, it's another week, another sermon, another song, another box to check? God does not want us to learn about him in order to relegate him to the realm of the ordinary. He wants us to have the highest view possible of him. That's why he's revealed himself in his word to us so graciously. So let's turn there this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 33 through 12, chapter 1. And I think this text will show us That when God reveals himself in the Bible and we have the doctrine of God, the reason why he gives us doctrine is not so that it can be an end in itself, 
God reveals himself and gives us the teaching of who he is in order that we might increase in our delight of and empower us for the duty of glorifying him. If you ever study the scriptures or the person of God academically and it does not lead you to delight in him, you are doing something wrong. Listen to the way Paul talks about God and let that light your heart on fire this morning to love God better. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Believer, when was the last time you were in awe of God? Is it only when you sing? That is not bad. You should have a a response to God. The psalmist says, shout for joy in the Lord. Praise befits the upright. It is good to sing that way, but you do not need music in order to be awed by him. He has revealed himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ for you and I. Every single time we look at him to be like the apostle Paul and go, oh, the depths of this great God. When was the last time you read the Bible that way? I want to make sure you and I do what we're designed to do. As image bearers of the great God of the universe, our function is to bring God glory, and we find greatest fulfillment when we do what he made us for. And so we can have the joy and purpose that we are searching for when we worship God the way he told us to worship him. Listen to how Paul starts. Oh, and if you know where this is, Romans eleven thirty three, it comes off of the section of 9 to 11. Those are some of the most disputed verses in all of the Bible because they speak about the sovereign election of God in salvation, the sovereign election of God in the nation of Israel, the sovereign election of God unto salvation away from his wrath, and it shows God is in complete control of all things. That's why he sums up here, who's ever given something first to God that he should be repaid. God is the first mover. He is the initiator. It is from him, to him, and through him. So God is the sovereign. He sits on his throne. He does whatever he pleases. And some people who argue against that think that if you study God that way, you will, you will become disillusioned, disinterested, and not delight in God. But Paul says, no. When I think about that God, I go, oh. When we come in contact with doctrine, it should cause our hearts to delight. Number one, why don't you write it down that way on your outline Remember, the proper response to doctrine is delight. The proper response to doctrine is delight. It is not a mere intellectual pursuit. It is not merely stuffing our heads with ideas and data. It is not just the reception of facts, although the Bible is true and it contains facts. 
But it, it is these facts that tell us the true reality of the God that we serve. And the fact that we have a relationship with him allows us to know that as we come in contact with this God, we can give him what he designed us to give him, which is unmitigated, unadulterated worship that comes from our heart, that delights in him because he has loved us with an everlasting love. Oh, the depths. I love that Paul starts there because that word oh has that connotation of a heightened emotional appeal, right? Oh. Paul says it to Timothy. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit. And if you're a father in the room, you know when you're talking to your sons and you want them to understand something, you say, oh, son, please listen to this. This truth is what you must have. Whatever circumstances come, please believe this. Oh, please do that. There's an emotional appeal. But there's also an authority with it. Paul says it in Romans 9, 22 and 23. There's a fictitious man he sets up and he's addressing. And he says, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? The one that says God doesn't have the right to do what he's going to do. Oh, who are you, old man? Pump the brakes for a moment. There's a God, and it's not you. And he's going to do whatever pleases him. But now it's not directed towards a person. It's directed towards doctrine. And the doctrine is 9 to 11, like I just quoted. But really here, it's probably all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he gives this great exposition of all this doctrine of how God takes sinners who deserve nothing but hell and gives them grace in Jesus Christ. And he goes, oh, the depths of this God, inexhaustible in his greatness. Now, we will talk about the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, but notice he goes, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So he moves from the inexhaustible nature to God to the unfathomable, unfolding plan and purposes of God. And Paul looks at them all together, and he is in Oh, believer, are you in awe of God? You need that in your life. Do you realize that even unbelievers realize that? I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review, which is what I say when I want to impress people with how smart I am, the Harvard Business Review. I only get like three free articles a year, and sometimes they cut it off because I didn't pay for the whole subscription. So it's not like a real big deal. But I read it from time to time. And this one struck me. It was talking about a secular psychologist's perspective on why we're facing so much depression or anxiety and anger and frustration. And he goes, because humans have stopped feeling this sense of awe. Listen to what Ethan Cross wrote. He says, awe is the wonder we feel when we encounter something powerful that we cannot easily explain. Then the author of the article comments, often the things which bring us awe have an element of vastness and complexity. And I go, I agree with you wholeheartedly. What brings us awe are things that we cannot explain, things that don't bring full comprehension to us. But can I ask you, Ethan Cross, and every person who doesn't know God, 
What basis do you have to define awe? You have none. If there is no God, what we are is a bunch of atoms and bones mixed together in some skin, having random, uncalculated interactions that if we get the sensation of awe, it's simply an action that happens and not reality. The reason why their worldview does not cut it when it comes to explaining these things is because there is no God behind it. But you and I know there is a God. And we know that the heavens declare the glory of God. That we can go outside and see a sunset, or we can look at the majestic mountains, or we can stand at the vastness of the ocean and go, there is a God who spoke that into being, and that's where awe comes from. Why don't we experience it anymore? Because we get distracted by lesser desires. God has done incredible things. Look what he said, unsearchable are his judgments. These judgments are the decrees of the king of the universe. That's who God is. He's God enthroned on high. He answers to no one. He needs no court of approval. He says it and it happens. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm, as the psalmist says. And if that's God, he says it and it's done with. And that's the God that we serve, that created everything and created you. And he made you for a purpose of worshiping him. So inscrutable are his judgments. That's the king's decree. And inscrutable are his ways. The way that he works out those majestic plans. We should be in awe of this. Now notice what is happening here with Paul. He's delighting in God as he admits, I can't get to the depths of who he is. What an encouraging thought that is for us. That when he comes to this idea of God, you are so high and lifted up, I cannot fully comprehend you. It is not a deterrent for him to study God more or to delight in God more. It is actually drawing him closer to God and wanting him to go more and more in him. He is not frustrated by the fact that he can't come to this full comprehension. He is fueled by the idea that day in and day out, no matter how much I give my heart and mind to God, I will increase further and deeper into this greatness of God because this side of heaven we know in part. Paul says one day we'll know in whole, but now we can investigate and we can go. He is not frustrated but fueled. He is not impeded by the progress because God is incomprehensible, he's impelled. Can you turn with me to Psalm 145? Notice this is the response to God's character that we should give. Psalm 145. This is what doctrine should do for us. Psalm 145. Look at verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Psalm 145. Verses 1 to 3, this is a psalm of David. David, a man who knew that when I have doctrine in God, it must delight my heart. And listen to the way that David talks. Okay, David, the king, ruler of all people, says this. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. 
Now, is that where the psalm stops? Does he throw his hands up in frustration and go, greatness is unsearchable, I'm done with my praise to God today? No, he is not frustrated, he is fueled. He is not deterred, he is drawn in. He is not impeded in his praise of God, he is impelled to know him more. Look at verse eight, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all his mercies over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints will bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. David delights in knowing God and he wants to tell everybody about it because doctrine should lead you to delight in the God that you learn about. How are you doing this morning? When you have your quiet time, is it a burden? When you get to this point where you're trying to evangelize, but you feel fearful, no, it should not be. If we know God, delight comes from him, and the things we delight in, we should speak about, spread the praise of, glorify, as we get to know them more and more, we have to remember that doctrine, the proper response to it is delight. Why doesn't that happen with us? Do you guys realize that's temptation's job in your life to get you to chase lesser desires? Isn't that what James tells us temptation is? But desire, when it's conceived in the heart, gives birth to sin, sin leads to death. Ultimately, and I was reading it this morning in my own quiet time, you have a volitional choice when you know doctrine to delight in it. Moses chose rather to be with the people of God and endure hardships than the fleeting pleasures in Egypt. Temptation's job is to draw you away from God. The problem is we don't put those temptations to death and deal with them. Guys, there's very few things that I do well. Some even question if there are any, right? There's just a few things that I do well. If I had a business card, not much is going on there, but one thing I can put on there is pest control, okay? I didn't even know this about myself. It's not because I have five sons, right? Guys, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I found a live possum in my house. I live in Tustin, California, the greatest city in the world, okay? Love Tustin. It sounds like I live in the backwoods of Oklahoma. I had a possum in my house where I eat. The possum was eating things. Where I sleep, presumably, he tucked in my sheets. The possum was in my house. Now, I can't take full credit. My wife and I, we did this together eventually, I'll tell you the story of how he got in in a moment, where he ended up was between the window and the screen, just like a pancake in there. I don't know how he got in there. But we approached him, and to try to get him into the bucket, at one point, my wife blew in the face of this possum to try to get him that way, and he hissed. And it was, that, that animal was so hideous, and disgusting and annoying, if I had to give it a name, it would be Lucas. Because, be, because 
those characteristics remind me of somebody. That's the only reason why I would do that. But we're there, and we get the possum into the bucket. And apparently, it's illegal to kill possums. It's illegal to kill possums. So there is a great field out next to our house where I know a bunch of coyotes live. <laughs> so Lion King told me circle of life. I took it over there, and we let it go, and nature did what it did. Okay? I want to tell you how the possum got into the house, though. Okay? This is how the possum got into the house. We got to get to school in the morning. We got five kids. They go to separate schools. So one parent has to take a couple that way. The other parent has to take the other couple. We got little Noxie, our four-year-old, and we get him ready to go to school. So we take him, and we turn the corner to get my car, and Noxie is a little reticent, and I turn the corner, and all I see is this long tail scurrying into the garage. And I'm like, I don't like that. So I go, okay, well, I've seen it go into the garage, we're at the car, and we're at the point of decision. <clears throat> I can either go deal with this rodent that is in my garage, or I can try to take the kids to school, get them to school on time. So I say, okay, kids, get in the car, I'll deal with this rodent later. So what I did is I made sure the door is shut from the garage to get into the house. Shut, closed, great, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out, and I'm going to close the garage door, hindering the rodent from going anywhere, and I'm going to localize it there. Won't get any further. That's as far as it's going to stop. So I take the kids to school. I think I've localized the threat right there. Deal with it later. Drive back home, and I'm ready for a battle, okay? Grab the manliest tool I can, a broom, <laughs> and I click the button to let the door go up. And I'm, I'm like, I'm waiting for this thing to jump at me. And nothing happens. I'm like, where is this rodent? So I start going around the corners, and I'm sweeping, and I'm trying to you know, tap to make noise to make it come out. Not there. Checking under shelves, looking in gas cans. Where is this rodent? And then I look up and notice now the door that was closed is cracked. And what had happened was my older son he didn't know about the rodent, came to check and make sure that mom and dad had left before he went to school. And when he let go of the door to shut, it snagged the carpet and allowed the possum to get in. And it got deeper and deeper into the house where I did not want it to go. So what's the lesson? Do not delay in dealing with what you know needs to be eradicated. Think about it. I said, I'll just deal with it later. I'm too busy. I'm going to make sure that, that I'll get it later. But when I think I can localize something that I don't want there, I begin to lose control of it. And now it will find any way to get further and further to where I do not want it to go. Desire for anything less than God functions the same way. The moment you see it in your heart, do not go, I'm just going to deal with that later. I'll just let that desire rest there. It's localized. It's not going to get further into my heart. I'm going to be fine. We'll deal with it later. Why does Proverbs say, keep your heart with all diligence? Because from it flows the issues of life. Everything about what you love is there. And it must be God. What is the great commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. Everything about you devoted to this God, loving him, desiring him, delighting in him. And if not, you will abandon your first love. Can you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation 2. Think about this, guys. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Listen to this. This is the church at Ephesus, a great church, ministered to by the Apostle Paul. Timothy had been involved in that. Church at Ephesus is an incredible church. Listen to what's going on. It says this, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. If you're going to write a Yelp review of this church right now, what are you going to say? They're a great church. They're spotting false apostles. They're bearing fruit. They're enduring for the name of God. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So what does he tell you to do? Repent. What is that desire that is drawing your delight from God? Put it to death and then go to the person and work of God and find your delight in him. Go back to Romans 11. That's exactly where the apostle Paul goes. Apostle Paul moves from the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Now, we don't have time to break down all of these, the riches and wisdom and knowledge. Some people think there's two things here, meaning that it's the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, and it's just the two things focused on. I think the ESV's done a good job here of saying that it's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. And what we see here are different attributes and characteristics given to the person of God that Paul is delighting in as he looks back and goes, the gospel work of God in salvation leads me to understand that it comes from a God who has knowledge greater than mine, wisdom greater than mine, and he has riches far beyond anything that I possess. So as he begins to delight in God, he's looking back at the gospel work that is done. Now, if you were to set this up, you would note that verses 34 and 35 connect each one of those attributes with one of the verses. Take a look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Notice that that lines up with knowledge. You could spend a great amount of time studying the knowledge of God and be encouraged by it. You can write down Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, and you know that's that great meditation on David, on the knowledge of God. But where I want to focus on is this idea of counselor. See that right there? Who's been his counselor? These are quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. And Paul is reflecting on those as he's seen the gospel work of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And notice that who has been his counselor would line up with wisdom. So we're seeing those two things line up together. Why do you go to somebody for counsel? Because you believe them to be wise. You can have all knowledge. Imagine if God were simply omniscient. We would be wowed by such a person who could rally off facts, who would know the outcome of all things. But if he wasn't all wise, what good does knowledge do? But we see them intersect. The great knowledge of God, his unsurpassed, unfathomable wisdom as his plan unfolds. 
and his plan in the gospel displays the greatest wisdom of God possible, which is why Paul is so excited about this. So let's look at what it means to refresh our hearts in delight towards God by understanding why Paul is so consumed with the wisdom of God here. Can you go back to Romans chapter 3 to see this? Romans chapter 3. And as you are turning to Romans chapter 3, I just want to read something from the Old Testament to set in your mind. Turn to Romans 3, 21 to 26. I'm going to read Proverbs 17, 5. Listen to this. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Wow, those are big verses. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous both are an abomination to God. So what has taken place in the gospel? Chapter 4 says... God justifies the ungodly. How is that possible, God? You just said in the Old Testament, if I justify the wicked, that's an abomination to you. And now in Romans 4, you're telling me you justify ungodly people? God, those things don't go together. How can that be? Listen to Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness of God because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Can you fathom how wise God is in the gospel to take people who deserve nothing but his righteous wrath because we are ungodly and search for our own pleasures and to take those people and to justify them in a way that does not negate his just character. God is incredible. That statement of being just and the justifier should blow your minds. God, how do you do it? You cannot hold those things in tension unless you have something as big as the gospel between them. Do you know what a a tension engagement ring is? You've heard of those before? Look it up. Anybody out there looking to get engaged? Tension engagement ring. Takes the ring and it puts them so close together like it's almost touching. And there's, the ring is so strong and powerful that you can hardly bend it. And what this tension ring is designed to do is just to be peeled back a little bit so you can place a diamond in the middle. And the tension of the ring is held together by the power of the diamond. That's what the gospel is to God's justice and his act of justifying the ungodly. Do you know the song, The Glories of the Cross? What wisdom once devised a plan where all my sin and pride was placed upon the spotless lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God 
whose greatness will be known when those who crucify the Son rejoice around his throne. Oh, the glories of the cross. Believer, do you delight in God? He delights in you because he killed his son for you. And he rose him three days later, so your guilt is wiped away, and his justice remains and grants you access to his kingdom. We must delight in God and not treat him with contempt. Go back to Romans chapter 11. The greatness of God, we should wonder at him. I heard a story this summer of a man who visited Rome, the Colosseum. You guys know the Colosseum? One of the seven wonders of the world. An incredible reality to look at, right? We've deemed it, mankind has deemed it, one of the most valuable pieces of architecture. The grandeur, the scope, the majesty of the Colosseum sets it apart from other buildings. And a guy went there this summer and decided to be romantic and etched his initials and his spouse's initials into the side of the Colosseum. Something so great they treated with contempt. Now, we had friends visit Rome this summer, and I first checked to make sure it wasn't him who was doing the inscribing. It wasn't him. But I asked them, like, would you know not to do that? I mean, first of all, you should know, right? You should know it's the Colosseum. My friend said, there's written revelation everywhere. Do not vandalize. Do not mark. There is a punishment if you do this. Everywhere you see, they've marked this out as a special, a a completely majestic building, and he treated it with contempt. Somebody filmed it. The Roman government got a copy of it, and now they're trying to prosecute him. So they're going back and forth through lawyers. The man who did it sent some correspondence to the... uh, to the Roman government, and this is what he said through his lawyer. He said this, I admit with the deepest embarrassment that only after what regrettably happened, I learned of the antiquity of the monument. So unless you went to public school, okay, I don't know that I buy that, okay? My apologies to the public school teachers, you do a great job out there. You don't know the greatness of the Colosseum? That feigned ignorance is going to get you nowhere. But it's the same with God. Believers, would we ever say that to him? God, I didn't know how great you are. He's revealed it in his word. And notice where we get to in verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Are you enthralled by the glory of God? Does it excite you to talk about the greatness of the glory that he possesses? Or has it become cliche to you? See, we, being regularly surrounded by and having access to God through the Holy Spirit in his word, we can be tempted to treat the glory of God as if it's something cliche. But we must never do that. Number two on your outline, write it down that way. Do not let God's glory become cliche. 
If we are going to worship God, delight in the doctrine that we have, we are going to come into contact with God's glory at every moment, and that should enthrall us. That should excite us. That should compel us to worship God more and more because we see the greatness of God in his glory. From him, through him, and to him are all things. A great summary of the sovereign work of God in all things. If you wanted to describe God's sovereignty in one word, that's it. From him, he's the source. Through him, he's the sustainer. To him, he's the goal. This is God. And if you want to just write down a couple of references, languages like this, language like this, is ascribed to Jesus as well. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and 7. Just write that one down. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and 7. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we see the greatness of Jesus alongside the Father. And we know and understand that every person of the Trinity shares that same essential glory. Acts 7-2, the Father of glory. James 2-1, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, the Spirit of glory. It is the essence of who God is to be glorious. Do you guys understand what a privilege it is to be image bearers and reflect that glory? I want to give you a definition of the glory of God. I think we got it on the screen. Definition of the glory of God. So I'll give you just the first kind of technical definition, and then you see in parenthesis just a simple one that you can walk away with. God's glory is the essential weightiness of his holiness, which promotes the reputation of his name and manifests itself in his presence. You think of the scriptures, the essential weightiness of the holiness of God is his glory. I read a great book on worship one time, and The way that the author summed him up, his name was Alan Ross, he said, worship is the appropriate response to the holy God of glory. And when you think of the glory of God, you should immediately be in contact with the holiness of God. Because those two attributes, I think out of all the attributes, describe the godness of God better than anyone. So that's why, simply put, if you just want to think, what is a simple definition for the glory of God, where if you were in the car or you were about to do your devotions, that you could tell yourself something, this is God's glory. It's the gravity and greatness of his holiness. And believer, I hope you love to hear that. The gravity and greatness of his holiness. Why does it say this over and over again in the Bible? Who is a God like you? Who is? There's no other God. Why do we let idols come in and rival it? Because we treat his glory as cliche. We cannot do that. From him to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. I would like you to turn to this passage with me so we understand glory. Turn to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. We got to cook, so I'm not going to give you time to turn there. You got to go fast. Genesis 45. This is the amazing part of the story where Joseph and his brothers, again, Joseph, a man, if you want to find a man, what does it mean to delight in God in the face of temptation? Joseph knows what it means. Potiphar's wife throws himself at Joseph, and what is his argument? Now, this is a bad thing to do, which it is. What does he say? I could not commit this great sin against God because he delights in him. Genesis 45, as Joseph is revealing himself, look at verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
Notice how he sees God's total control of all things from him, through him, and to him. It is God. That's what Joseph knows about God. So even though Joseph's brothers were the means that God got Joseph there, it was ultimately God because he's in all control and he will get glory for all things. Look at verse 13 of that chapter. After revealing himself, he says, hey, verse 13, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. See that word honor? That's the Hebrew word kavod. Go tell my father of all my glory in Egypt. What does that tell us about the idea of glory? The possession of prominence. What did Joseph have? Second highest position in all the land. Says something, it's going to happen. Riches at his fingertips, a plan to solve a problem. Joseph has so much glory associated with him. Riches, he has armies, all of that attached to his name, and at a word, he can make it happen. That's glory. And the God that saved you and I is the all-glorious God. I don't know that we rightly talk about the weightiness of the glory of God. Maybe I can give you an example of that. My son had a baseball game yesterday. My son Hudson, and uh, they finally got their uniforms. So my son Hudson got uh, his jersey, and he has the number 42. 42. Incredible that he got that number. If you grew up like me in the 90s, 42, you might think of Mo Vaughn. If you didn't watch 90s baseball, you have no idea who that is. But I bet you know the most famous number 42. Jackie Robinson. You guys know Jackie Robinson wore number 42? I want to explain to my son why it's really cool that he has that number. You know why? Because no Major League Baseball player will ever wear that number again. They retired it. Right? In fact, in some stadiums, they have it printed on the outfield wall. Now imagine I'm trying to speak of the significance or the weightiness of Jackie Robinson in his career to my son, and he says, Dad, why, why did they retire this number? What if I say to him, son, the reason why they retire Jackie Robinson's number is he was a great baseball player. I mean, he could hit for average. He had a very high average. I think he might have even won some batting titles. The guy could steal bases, had unbelievable athleticism. He was a great defender, he, he, I think he probably won some gold gloves if they had that back then. Jackie Robinson was just a great offensive and defensive threat. That's why they retired his number. Have I said true things about Jackie Robinson? Yes. But have I talked about the weightiness of Jackie Robinson and what he accomplished? Oh, no. I haven't spoken of the courage in the face of hate I haven't spoken of how he broke the barriers for African-Americans to come into Major League Baseball. I haven't talked about the character and integrity it must, he must have possessed in order for him to be able to withstand slurs and hatred and disgusting play on the field, to maintain that high level of excellence, which he did on the field. All of that speaks to the weightiness of who Jackie Robinson is. So I can say true things about somebody, but I must get to the essential weightiness of who they are. 
When you speak about Jesus, do you just simply call him a good teacher? That's true. Do you say he did nice things for the poor? I believe it. But is that the essential weightiness of the Lord Jesus Christ who is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting to come back when he makes his enemies his footstool? Jesus is glorious far beyond our comprehension. What about God? All let's talk about God is love. And is it true that God is love? Yes, absolutely. But the holy God of glory is love. The God who should have sent you to hell the moment you sinned, but in his grace and his patience waited so that he could make his glory shine through the gospel. God in his glory is great. And do not relegate it to the realm of the ordinary. We are believers designed to glorify God in all we do. How do we do that? Look at the book of Romans real quick. Romans chapter 4. Look at what Abraham did. Romans 4. That's what it says about Abraham. Romans 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do what he had promised. We give glory when we live the life of faith. Or to quote Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him. It is our job to glorify this great God who is the God of glory and we want it to all go to him. Remember what we read a few moments ago. Why do unbelievers go to hell? Because they do bad things. That's true. That's not the weightiness of it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So they're not just going to hell for the bad things that they do, but the one thing they do not do, which is what they were made to do, and that's glorify him. Can I give you an example? If you listen to podcasts, I'm not promoting the show. There's a podcast out there, Freakonomics, about an economist study on the subject of two-parents' home versus a one-parent home. And the economist is touting this idea, two-parent homes are better than a one-parent home, listing all of the scientific data that she studies. And not one time mentions that the creator of the universe designed marriage to be that way, between a man and a woman, so that there would be two people over a child. That's how God gets glory. That woman who wrote that article She could be the nicest woman in the world and she will stand before the judge one day and if she did not give God the proper glory, she will suffer in hell. All of that should lead her to say, why does this work? It works because there's a God who made it and that God designed it a specific way, one man, one woman, to shepherd a family, to spread the image of God throughout the world so God gets more glory. God deserves the glory. Do not let it be cliche. Back to Romans chapter 11. Paul cannot stop there, neither can we. Look at where he goes, verse 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This takes us to the final component. We cannot just stop at doctrine. We know that. God designed it to let doctrine lead us to delight. But if we just sit in that delight and think that that's what it's meant for, we don't understand that the duty laid upon us is to give our entire life to God. No compartmentalizing, but everything about us to the creator who deserves all honor and glory. Number three on your outline, offer true worship which is total surrender. You must offer true worship, which is total surrender. There are so many things that we could point out for the sake of time, we won't. Paul appeals, I think this is an authoritative appeal, by the mercies of God, the first 11 chapters, all the great things, notice the plural, the mercies of God that he takes them through. And if you were to go back to the beginning, you will see that everything in this text is the reversal of what sin did. Sin caused man in the garden, Romans 1, to not glorify God or give him thanks, and his mind was darkened, and he worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So when Adam messed up, what came after him was disobedience. But when Jesus comes in and saves, what comes from Jesus is our obedience to God. We don't obey in order for God to transform us. He transforms us in order that we might obey by giving us our entire life to God, the entirety of our body. If you would just write down Romans chapter 6, you would see a great callback to Romans 6, where Paul there says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and present yourself to God. Every single day that you open up your Bible, when you sing songs here, when you go to work, whatever you are doing, think I am presenting myself to God as an object of worship, as a sacrifice that he might find pleasing. What does it mean to present yourself? It means I'm at the ready to do what he says. There's a great picture of that in Matthew 26. The story is Peter cuts off the ear of the, the, the soldier that was trying to take Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter and goes, Peter, don't you know that I could ask God and he would present to me a multitude of angels? What would that mean? That those angels are at the ready to do what his master says. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is a spiritual service of worship. Guys, God demands nothing less than the totality of who you are. Are you ready to give it? This is not some upper echelon of Christianity this is the Christian life, and it is a glorious one to give your life as a sacrifice to the glorious God. We pastors up at Tustin, we're doing our, our weekly pastors meeting, and we're already having to talk about Christmas, which is an incredible reality. We're thinking about Christmas right now. And so you have to plan in advance, but whenever I think of Christmas, I'm always reminded of one of my favorite, it's intriguing stories of history. Have you heard the story of the great Christmas truce? I believe it was World War I. The two warring sides were fighting each other. I think it was around the first year. It was probably 1914, maybe 1915. Their trench warfare, World War I, horrible, horrific warfare. One side in this trench, one side over there, no man's land in between, barbed wires, shells, guns, bombs, everything. It's just horrific, and they're fighting one another until Christmas Eve. And I think the story goes, somebody on the German side was singing Christmas carols. And I'm not sure what Christmas songs they were singing, but I'm sure it sounded angry, because all German sounds angry when they sing. <laughs> so they were singing, but the other side then 
responded by, in their own tongue, singing some Christmas songs as well. So no one's fighting, now people are just singing songs. Then one person pops up from a trench and he's not shot, another person pops up, and they come meet in the middle. Guys, for three days, these warring fractions called a truce, and they're exchanging gifts, playing games together, until a few days later, the war started back up. People go, that's a miracle. It's not. A truce that lasts three days led to a war of unspeakable casualty. The truce did nothing, because how do you win a war? Total surrender. You don't enter into a truce with God. We treat it that way sometimes. God, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. We'll be cordial towards one another. That's not Christianity. You lay down your arms. You bow your knee to Jesus Christ, and you come into service in his army to fight for his glory. Guys, take the doctrine that you are so regularly preached so well from this pulpit and let it delight your hearts, but do not stop there. Offer your life totally to God so that he gets the worship he deserves and we find the fulfillment that we long for because God made us to glorify him. Let's pray. God, please help us. We can do nothing apart from you. It is by your grace and your grace alone we see the amazing work of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Father, as we come to never do things merely as a routine. Routines are not the problem, Father. Our problem is as we look at those routines and we turn them into something they're not. Allow the habits that we live out, God, to be those that draw us to you. Allow the times that we come together in worship to fuel our heart's desire to sing greater praises to you. Father, would you please utilize us as your people to spread your fame throughout the world. And so help us right now as we get ready to sing this final song to do so with renewed hearts that want to be pleasing to you. We pray this all in your glorious son's name. Amen. Amen.